I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Today I am super excited to welcome somebody I have followed on Instagram for quite some time and have been excited to interview, and we finally managed to make it work, what with my ineptitude at time zone conversion to Australia. So Scott Robinson is based in Sydney, Australia. And he is known on Instagram and all the social networks as the brain guy. So if you want to follow him, I'll put those links in the show notes. But I'm just going to plunge right into introducing him. So on Scott's website, he says, whatever it is that you're looking to achieve in life, it is the brain and nervous system that control your life's outcomes. And he is an applied movement neurology master practitioner and coach who has a background in personal training and was previously an elite athlete in Taekwondo and middle distance running. It turns out also he has spent some happy time in Barcelona where I live. So we connected on that when I first reached out to him. It is a happy place for a lot of people. Scott is also a senior lecturer with the Academy of Applied Movement Neurology. His work focuses on achieving balance in the governing systems of the body. And that means getting the nervous system communicating optimally and upgrading the subconscious programs we all run, like our internal software, to create and live our best lives. Scott works with clients on improving high performance, transforming stress, resolving trauma, pain or dysfunction, and also just generally upgrading people's lives. So just like you need to upgrade the software on your phone every once in a while, you can do the same for your nervous system. If you didn't already know that, definitely sit down somewhere to listen or be prepared to listen to this a few times and possibly go find some of the resources or techniques that we will talk about because this is fascinating stuff and I am kind of obsessed with this. The more work I do in mindfulness and leadership and stress relief for people. So I'm really excited today to talk to somebody who has such an insight and a practical knowledge of neuroscience and how to apply it to real life. And we're also going to talk a bit about the neuroscience of discomfort how discomfort can be a signal to upgrade, a sign that something is off or an invitation to expand your comfort zone. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say welcome, Scott. It's really, really nice to have you here at last. Thank you. Betsy, that's an amazing, amazing little intro. And thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to get here. And you've got me excited about the chat just listening to that. I'm I'm, I'm good to go. <laughs> well, that's good news. All right. So I always start the same with the same question. And that is, what's an uncomfortable moment that has changed your life that drives who you are and how you show up in the world? Oh, it's exciting. So I think, look, I guess, and I work in a healing space. So I've told this story a few times to a few different people, but so a really, really uncomfortable moment for me is so I am the product of a, a mixed race marriage. So my, my mother's black and my father was white. And um, I had this amazing moment when I was 12 years old, having lived my whole life in pretty much an all white society and, you know, and, and, and dealing with all kinds of racial issues and just constantly being, you know, in fights at school because um, I was a different color. You're just in the playground, mm. you're just different. And and when I was 12 years old, we went over to home, as my mother always described it. So we went back to Los Angeles and we were staying with her sister and we were in South Central, you know, in, like in, in, 
in the ghettos of South Central LA in the in the mid to late 80s and it was kind of the peak of gang violence and it was just really really rough neighborhoods and and it was just the happiest time of my life. It was just the most amazing, amazing, amazing time. I just felt for the first time in my life, felt like I just truly, truly belonged. Mm. And then I just had this moment where all of that was absolutely shattered uh, when I was out on my own in a park one day and these two little kids who were black, you know, as pretty much all the kids in that neighbourhood were, these two little kids came up and pulled a knife on me and told me, get your white ass out of here. And that absolutely imploded my whole world. So that was a moment of just extreme discomfort because I just was completely lost in the world at that moment, really didn't, couldn't make sense of things. I was just completely stunned. But really what happened out of that was kind of realising that you're a shade of grey and then down the track realising that there's, you know, there's a healing journey, there's some deep healing that kind of needs to be done um, around this and going in sort of going in and doing I guess all the self-work and actually looking you know looking into all your own neurology and looking into your own history and um, and and clearing a whole bunch of these kind of limbic emotional traumas and conflicts that I had kind of as a result of that and moments beforehand and it was pretty amazing sort of to unfold all of that stuff and then arrive at what we would you know in classic terms uh, describe as a place of wholeness so I guess, you know, looking at that and, and understanding that wound, um, that was an incredibly uncomfortable moment that created a big wound that really needed healing. And, you know, when I first started to become aware that I thought this kind of healing space was the space I wanted to be sort of shifting into, um, I think like most people who identify that in themselves, they think they've got it all together, as I did at the time, and then you find out you've actually got a lot of work to do yourself to kind of find a find a place of balance and a place of peace so that you can actually help people. So that was an amazing opportunity and an amazing wound to actually be able to go in and heal, make yourself whole, and then go and find this higher expression where you can really sort of self-actualize and, um, and just deliver on your, on your purpose. Wow. I was talking to somebody the other day and it, that really lands for me about how often the people who have the most work to contribute to the world are the ones with some of the deepest wounds and mm. you do all this work to heal them, to gain the skills, to heal yourself. And then you can turn that out on the world and help others. And if you don't, it's just such a bloody waste of time. <laughs> you do all this work <laughs> to heal yourself and then you keep it to yourself. But wow, what a beautiful, what a beautiful answer. I'm sorry to sort of like fawn all over it, but I didn't expect that. And it's just such a beautiful, well, segue into my next question, which was going to be, what was your journey into becoming the brain guy? So I guess sort of plunging into what were some of the aha moments that built your expertise? Because obviously when you start out healing trauma and doing some work, you don't quite grasp what you're doing yet sometimes mm. or the knowledge comes and then you apply it to your trauma or your trauma has driven you into it in a way that you don't really, you aren't conscious of at the time. So how did that plunge you into maybe more formal learning, more study of the neuroscience and the limbic trauma and some of that stuff you've referred to well the, the the whole the big picture is is quite synchronous and it's a long history that i guess goes right back to the you know day dot in my life and i you know, i can kind of trace it back and um and it was always there that journey that person that quest that purpose was kind of always there but i would say sort of in you know in 50 words or less if we're going to condense it so we don't run over time really we're looking at i was born into a family where everyone was athletes and everyone were high performers and 
everyone in my family kind of represented their country at something. And so you had this drive to, you know, you had this drive to be the best. So you're going to be an athlete. That's kind of, that's what everything in your life is set up to just optimize. And you're constantly looking at ways that how can I find this, you know, this extra percent, this extra half a percent that I need to get in front of my next rival. And so your whole life and your whole mindset is set up around that. And when I retired from that, when I was, I was competing in Taekwondo and when I retired from that life as an athlete, um, I remember very clearly thinking, you know, that, well, I've just spent, you know, the best part of a decade really, really just focusing all my skills and all my energy and attention into developing this level of focus and this level of dedication. Well, I'll I'll be damned if I'm going to just throw it away and let it go. I mean, I want to turn it into something. I don't, so I just, I, I turned my hand to personal training, which I was already doing at the time, but then basically I just applied that competitive focus to type to um, personal training. And I, I just, tried to be the very best that I possibly could in terms of personal training. And it came to me fairly quickly that really what I was trying to achieve and what I wanted, what was kind of most lighting a fire on, you know, lighting a spark sort of deep in my soul was that just helping people. It was just, just helping and trying to connect with, with people as best I possibly could and, and get the most profound result for people that I could. And, and I guess initially it was just looking at the physical body and muscles and weight loss and all those things that, you know, that, that, personal trainers sort of work towards as their bread and butter, but those big life-changing moments, you know, where people's, you know, people's self-image was shifting in profound ways. That, that, those kind of life-shifting moments and that were just so gratifying and so satisfying to be a part of, they only happened kind of, you know, once a year, maybe twice a year, but they really, they were the breadcrumbs that really pushed me into looking at the brain and the nervous system because I started doing a bunch of rehabilitation work and again, I thought that was me being a high-level personal trainer, but I just figured out um, in not too long that really I was just working with the body and I was working against the centrally driven signals. I was working against all of these signals in the body, trying to change movement dysfunction and, and, and heal the body's movement system, uh, working against signals that were coming from the central computer, which we, could, we can say is the brain and the brain and the nervous system. And I was moving arms and moving legs in people and had all these fancy dancy drills um, trying to make change. But when I was looking at it, really, I wasn't affecting a lot of long-term change. And, and in part, that was because the people I was seeing was only sort of once a week or twice a week. So if you see someone once a week for an hour, there's, there's 167 other hours in the week where they can go and do those drills incorrectly and, and undo your good work. And, and I worked out if I was going to be, if I was going to make profound change, I really needed something more direct and something a bit more powerful. And so uh, I kind of stumbled, stumbled into that space with the, with the brain and the nervous system and was able to start going to that central computer and, and finding the buttons to push that would change those signals. And then when you change those signals at the motherboard, then all of a sudden the expression of the movement, the expression of those patterns completely changes. And I was just seeing movement dysfunction just change and kind of just dissolve away into mm. something far more normal in, in almost no time at all. And, and then once you see that, well, that, that was just the most inspiring, motivating thing. It was like, okay, I'm into the rabbit hole. And, you know, that was kind of seven years ago and which seven years doesn't sound like all that long a time, but mm. I just really, as I say to people all the time, I can't describe how fast things move in this space and really what, what I've, and this has been true for the last seven years that really what I'm able to do with people kind of literally changes on a week to week basis. You know, it's Mm. just, you can, you can read a medical paper 
and you don't have to wait for a drug to be developed. You don't have to wait for some fancy machines to be to be developed. You can just go and apply that straight away because the brain and the mind are limitless. And all you need to do is just feed it the information and just pull new things into your awareness and all of a sudden you can do more. And, and it's just it's an incredible space to get to work in because you just see such profound change in such short time compared to what um, society deems to be normal and acceptable. Mm. Um, it, it's just it's a it's a marvelous space to be involved in, and it's incredibly inspiring because you can just go and study, and you can read a few papers, and then all of a sudden you're just doing something completely different rather than. Mm. My, my experience at university was study for a whole semester, sit a test, and then really not feel all that much more enlightened. Ah, that's exciting and magical, I can imagine, because you're just like, I just learned this thing and I can apply it. And boom, somebody's life mm. is different as a result or their body is different. So you yes. got into it from a really physical perspective and then kind of started to discover, it sounds like, how much it can actually change people's lives to understand mm. how we're wired and how... I guess also with injury and things like that, how discomfort is a real invitation to rewire or reprogram. So how has that gotten you more and more into, say, I guess, behavior change or changing habits? So beyond just physical training, because now it's something you use to help people change their whole mm. lives. So how did that happen? I would say one of the greatest blessings that I've experienced was I started working when I, when I first jumped into this space really what it was it was a it was a just a random synchronous little moment where i i popped onto social media and i saw a facebook ad with two guys firing a a, a reflex to make a pectoralis muscle become stronger and to me that was mind-blowing at the time but i thought that's exactly what i'm looking for and it was it's the most incredibly simple thing really than i look at it now but at the time it was absolutely mind-blowing and so these two guys uh, were kind of advertising for the, the Academy of Applied Movement Neurology, which I'd never heard of before. But the amazing thing about that paradigm was that it didn't lock me into any one particular viewpoint. I never had to subscribe to a, a particular mode or method of seeing the body. I never needed to look at the body in one particular way and be locked into that. So I never, whatever was presenting in front of me in, in, a, in a particular brain or a particular nervous system I never had to make my the answers of what I was finding. I never had to make that presentation fit inside a particular box or make it look a certain way. Hmm. Hmm. And I guess once you start to see positive positive reactions from different people, you kind of just adapt. You sound very intuitive in your approach. So would you say you have sort of a methodology or is it different every time based on your your knowledge, obviously? With every single person, is it different? And so this is the thing. So as I said, I was free to just keep asking the question why. And while I was free to keep asking the question, what's the truth of this situation? I was free to just ask those questions and then allow the answer to be whatever it needed to be. So the truth would, would always kind of unfold. And over a, a, quite a period of time, just more and more, really what I was seeing was that the, the base of everything, kind of the root of everything, at least as far as I've gone so far, um, at the heart of everything is thought energy. You know, it really just comes back to thought and, you know, where so many of our systems need to have a physical explanation, there needs to be a chemical explanation or there needs to be some level of physicality to the, to the answer. Um, there are these thought fields and just these thought energies that are literally at the heart 
of everything. And when you bring those thought fields and those thought energies back to truth, well, then you change the expression in the body and you change, you kind of change everything. So I guess that was, that's how things sort of morphed and changed from looking at physical dysfunctions into like, wow, we really can affect far more here just working with the, with these systems. And, and I guess it just came into my awareness that really we were only limited by the things that were in my awareness and anything that we have within our awareness, we could actually, you know, we're working with the governing systems of the body, the brain and the the nervous system. So we could potentially affect in profound, profound ways. Mm, So it sounds as if your awareness of how people work is also your awareness of how this could work for you. This dawning realization that that thought energy you talk about was powerful Mm. and it brought you into less of a physical trainer role and more of a holistic role are there any really great examples that stick in your mind about, oh my gosh, this really works for this person because they've gone from that issue or being stuck on that to something much different because of just understanding how they're wired and helping them to just oh. quickly rewire? Yeah, there's absolutely no shortage. And so when I first started literally day one, because I was just day one after my very first course, I was just clinging onto the information, hoping that I could understand it and, you know, and, and not forget it. And I remember just thinking, you know, my first client was 5.30 in the morning and I remember thinking, I need to be using this stuff straight away or it's probably gone. And I went to work and literally resolved two long-term um, muscle dysfunctions, painful dysfunctions that I had not been able to make a dent in. Uh, and these things disappeared in a matter of seconds, and wow. I was just absolutely blown away. As were the people that I was that I was doing them on. Uh, so I was sold straight away, and that just made me just dive in wholehearted. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's any number, I, I, there's any number of of people who just have that absolutely mind blown moment when, you know, they turn up and they think they have a physical dysfunction, and we'll look at it, and it turns out there's a limbic correlation. Your limbic brain is your emotional brain, and then your limbic brain says. I'm sorry, this looks like it's a self-abandonment conflict. There's something happened with you just not being truly who you are, not being true to yourself at age 11. And essentially, so when you have a limbic trauma or a limbic conflict, you have an emotional conflict, there will be physical correlations to that. And so, so many of the injuries and the sorenesses and whatnot that we, uh, that we experience and we think are just purely physical, when you go deeper, there's an emotion there. There's an emotion to it. And so, and essentially those emotions all come from, come from, come from thought because the reason you've had the emotion is because you perceived something to be stressful or you perceive something to be bad or you perceive something to be upsetting and, and that created emotions. But the whole reason that that happened is because you had deep subconscious beliefs that formed those perceptions about your experience and that created the stress response so we go right back to the heart of things there's this level of thought energy that's just underneath everything um and that so that's what i just started seeing and it's like the more you start to see that then it's like oh well how can we get to that more directly how can we work that work with that in different ways how can we what does the body need to to undo these things and dissolve these things and so i guess i just started with a handful of different methods of being able to just give the body what it wanted and what it, what it's looking for to to change I guess these these conflicts and change those dysfunctional patterns or those painful patterns, and that's just evolved into a you know, a large list, a large number of different ways that we can kind of go about things and just give the body whatever it actually wants because the higher intelligence within the system and the body's way 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 smarter than we are consciously um, that it it always knows what it needs to heal it always knows what it needs and this is the amazing thing that we kind of just we 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 we're reasonably dis- disconnected from 
is that the brain has this incredible network of 86 billion neurons and it knows what it needs. It knows, mm. it knows what it needs to heal. It knows what it needs to be at its highest expression. And if we know how to ask the right questions and kind of engage in a dialogue, well, we can access that, inf- that, that information and then we can just work directly. Rather, we can work directly with the system giving it what it wants rather than me kind of just staying in my ego and telling people that I've got 20 years experience or whatever it is and mm. because I've seen X number of cases that look similar, 55% of them present a certain way. So we'll just try that approach and see how that goes. And it's, you know, rather than just guessing, then we can just ask the system what it needs and give it what it tells us. And that's a really direct and really fast way to go. Ah, I like that you brought up the ego thing because it, it also what struck me was that we our society has been set up on specialisms around such things. So like people mm. would think, well, you go to a psychiatrist or a psychotherapist to deal with those deep emotional questions and blah, blah, blah. But actually we know the, the answers that our body needs. And also we have so yeah. many of the answers inside of us. And what we often just need is a skilled listener to accompany us or ask us the right questions, which is what you're talking about to trigger those things. Somebody who understands how you work, but also like, we know the answers ourselves. We can actually heal ourselves. We can actually deal with trauma ourselves if we just have the help with you know, of somebody with some some useful techniques. So what are some of the sort of standard things that you find helpful for people? You know, sort of when, what were some of the initial things that you just went, oh my gosh, this is magic and you do it with everyone or most people? You know, what are some of those techniques? Because people are probably wondering, as am I. Yeah, so if you've, if you've heard of EFT, Emotional Freedom Technique, mm. Emotional freedom technique is not something that I that I use, but so qigong, which is just tapping, is essentially that was one stimulus. That was one. It's a parasympathetic stimulus, which essentially is just tapping on bones, tapping on bony sites. And now the science behind that is that bones are what we call piezoelectric, and piezoelectric means pressure electric. So when you deform that structure, when you put a mechanical stress on that structure, even a very, very light, very moderate, very, very, very light mechanical stress, it releases electricity. So mm. all the bones and the connective tissues in the human body are what we call piezoelectric. So when you go walking, you're releasing electricity and it's like you're charging the body like a battery. Now, that electricity, like we said, it's parasympathetic in its nature, which means it's kind of calming. Now, what we would do in, in applied movement neurology, and this is how I you know, how I started with things was you would navigate your way through the nervous system. You'd navigate your way through the neurophysiology and you'd find all of the circuits that held a, an altered bioelectric charge. Altered bioelectric charge would all, would always correlate to some level of physiological dysfunction or whichever dysfunction it was that you're actually looking at. And once you'd collected all the neural pathways, all the circuits and all the systems that were involved in that particular dysfunction or that particular pain presentation, you could just introduce a really, really simple stimulus like tapping someone on a bony process like the spine or on the cranium mm. um, and all of a sudden the pain would go away or all of a sudden they'd start, to be, they'd start to be able to move differently. And it's just the most simple, simple, simple fix. The process itself was a little bit more challenging, obviously, to understand the neurophysiology and understand the brain circuits. Mm-hmm. But once you had that, it was such a simple little fix to be able to go and make this profound change. So that was pretty motivating to sort of look and think like, wow, are we really just overcomplicating things here? Are we just, you know, and, and, and the more I've gone into this, um, we have our society is set up on all of these limiting beliefs. And, um, and, and part of that or amongst that is that we place such a virtue in complexity. 
you know, we, we, we see things as more valuable if they're more complex or if, you know, if there's a, and this is where the, that whole, you know, discomfort practice or that neuroscience of discomfort comes in is that as humans, we like, we really like to separate ourselves from a good result with suffering and time <laughs> and effort. And we, and we see that as a virtue. And I grew up with that. I grew up with a father who was a, a middle distance runner and, you know, he just saw an effort, saw a virtue in suffering and effort and, you know, hard work. And, and he was amazing at it. And he instilled that same attitude in myself and in my sisters as well. But, you know, there, there's a lot of times, and this, I guess this leapt off the page when I was a kid, when I'd do something and just work smart rather than hard. Yeah. And I remember him being really disappointed with me. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> no, I just got a great result for minimal effort in less time. Like surely that's to be celebrated. And he was just not happy about it. And I think there's, you know, and, and as a society, not everybody holds those same beliefs, but, but, we, but we subscribe to that same kind of practice in that, you know, when we say we've got a big goal to hit, uh, people will, instead of saying like, right, what's, what's the shortest, quickest path there, people will, will tend to ask questions like, okay, what books can I read? What podcasts can I listen to? How do I need to inform myself? What other experts could I listen to? And how can I gain a picture? And then what's one thing I could start doing? And we'll just introduce all of these different steps in the process that perhaps don't all need to be there. And we don't look for the simplest, easiest way forward because we see that, that virtue and we put, we, we put such a value in that level of kind of suffering and hard work. But that's actually not even how our brains work, is it? Like our brains can't handle complexity. So it works double time to try to bridge the gap between things like, you know, cognitive dissonance, where there's a difference between what you believe and what you actually do. So our brain's always seeking the easiest and most efficient way to do things. And then we just kind of complicate it by the idea that no pain, no gain, or even, you know, some of the Buddhist philosophies out there are about, you know, suffering is virtuous and cleansing and Basically, what you're saying is actually you don't have to suffer. You don't have to struggle. Struggle is not necessarily a virtue. Uh, it can actually be quite easy if you just work with the way things are meant to work. Mm. Yeah, look, I, and I think your path can be whatever your true path needs to be. And yes, if your true path is that, that there's some hard work and there's some uncomfortable moments that need to be a part of that, then absolutely embrace that and kind of settle into that. Get uncomfortable being, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable and, mm. and, and be there and get the result. But a lot of times, and this is just an amazing thing to just, just take into consideration, is just consider for a moment that nearly all of the pain and discomfort that we experience, we cause to ourselves, you know, and potentially really mm. unnecessarily. And, and generally it will be just via the resistance that we create to things, you know. Potentially it could be the resistance to that easy path forward because we, we believe that we need to, there needs to be effort. There needs to be some hard work. There needs to be time between us and that good result. And, and that's something that I see all the time. We just, we create this resistance, which then just lengthens out the time. And you're right in that the brain is looking for, it's, it's looking for energy efficiency. It's looking for that, what, what it deems to be the most simple path forward. But really what that is, is the brain just wants to run the autopilot. It wants mm. to run programs and that's the easiest thing. It doesn't really matter what those programs are. And this is one thing I'm saying to people when we've changed their programs is that there's no one program in the mind. There's no one program in the subconscious mind that had, that holds a mortgage over the entire mind. <laughs> so in the process that I work with people, it's very different to traditional processes because it, when we're working with changing subconscious beliefs, which is part of what I do, 
most processes, if you're working with something like affirmations, most processes that we have that are conventional and people are familiar with are conscious mind processes. And your conscious mind is only like 5%. It's 5% of your total brain processing. So if you're trying to overturn all of those programs in the subconscious mind, which is 95%, if you're trying to overturn that entire iceberg by only working with the 5% that's above the water and trying to push that over, it's going to be a really challenging battle because 95% is below the, below, below the surface and you're not actually accessing or working with that. Mm. You're just hoping to overwhelm it by working with the 5%. The process that I work with is, is quite the opposite. So we'll just work with the 95%, change that, and then you really only need to get that 5% on board. So what I'm explaining to people once they've changed that, that 95% and we just need to get that remaining 5% on board is the conscious mind just needs to be present and needs to be able to see the program. The conscious mind always remembers the habit. It remembers your life experience and it will just be looking to run the autopilot. It will be looking to run the autopilot function and it doesn't care what belief you have. As I said, there's no one program that no one belief that holds a mortgage over the mind. It just wants to know that there is an energy efficient setting. It wants to know that there is an autopilot function that Mm -hmm. is going to allow that brain to, to, to function uh, at reduced energy expenditure and thereby extend out the amount of time that you've got to go and hunt and find food again and then you can survive for longer. So that's mm. really the main concern. And so if you change those beliefs the conscious, and you give the conscious mind a chance to see it, then really it just it, it, it's happy to connect with that new program because the program's already there. Oh, so yeah. the, it's beautiful to work with. Um, and it's, as I said, you are right. The brain is just looking for that easy way forward, but the easy way forward is just the automatic program. It doesn't really matter which program it is. The brain doesn't mind. It just wants to know that there's an energy efficient setting. Well, this brings us to a great point about comfort zone versus discomfort zone. And if you think about it, that means that, well, we're running, what is it by the time we're 30 or something, you'll know this much better than me. So feel free Mm. to correct my stats, but we're 80% of what we do is, is unconscious programming. We've programmed our, Mm. our self computer to run certain programs, but we might be in a comfort zone that's actually made up of deeply uncomfortable or even harmful things to ourselves, but we keep running that program because it's what we're comfortable with. So by being uncomfortable, often it means you're, you're resetting things that are actually better for you. But in the meantime, it's uncomfortable because it's not what you're used to. So there is a role of discomfort in there, positive discomfort to reprogram, to to, to reprogram that, wow, 95% of the iceberg below hmm. the surface. That was a great metaphor. I was like, oh, I love that metaphor for the subconscious because yeah, we we don't really know about that. We don't think about it as sort of, you know, civilians out here who aren't neuroscience experts. So you work predominantly with athletes and leaders and people who are really driven to to better their lives, to improve their lives, to reprogram, right? Well, I, I, the minimum requirement to work with me is is anyone who's got a brain. If you've got one of those, we can do something really positive with you. So <laughs> okay. that's that's bas- that's basically it. I and mean, when I got into things, it was people who were experiencing a level of dysfunction, um, and th- and we were able to just normalize. And the amazing thing with with normalize is that normal in the human organism is amazing. It's just not that it's just that many of us never actually get to experience that true, amazing normal. Um, And things have changed for me and evolved over time. And now I'm able to change dysfunction and we're able to sort of work with really, really complex cases, but we can also just work with normal people or work with people who are already working at a high level. We can just up level. We can just Mm. upgrade those programs. And, and I'd like to just touch on really, really quickly because something you said before was just fantastic and it was beautiful, talking about 
when we're shifting to something new or we're trying to shift to something new and we use, we, we kind of need discomfort to, to, to shift into that new space or sometimes just being in that, depending on the programs that we're running, just operating in that habitual space can be uncomfortable if we're running programs that make us feel that way. Mm. And so there's something that comes up a lot for me, and this is probably going to resonate with a bunch of people who listen to this. So most people are aware of, of a thing called self-sabotage and, and so mm. many people experience this on different levels where you're trying to achieve a goal, trying to get to a certain experience of life or a certain level of, of life, what you know, life experience. And you just, for whatever reason, it just feels like you end up pulling the rug out from underneath your own feet and constantly. You just find a way to get in your own way and just don't realise that highest expression. And it's a thing that we call secondary gains. And a secondary gain is essentially when your subconscious mind perceives a benefit in staying in the situation that you're in. And it might not be something that consciously you're aware, you're aware of. It might be something that your conscious makes absolutely no sense to your conscious mind. And this happens a lot of time with people who are in pain is that their, their subconscious mind perceives a benefit in staying where they are. And it might be because they get more nurturance when they're sick or dysfunctional or in pain. It might be they get more attention. It might be that there's a, there's a, a financial benefit. There's some there's some, some medical payout or some benefit that they receive. There'll be some subconscious benefit that the mind latches onto and keeps them in that uncomfortable situation despite their best conscious efforts to shift to something different. And, and it's really, really, really common. So it's just, it's a wonderful thing. I'd like to put it out there because it's just, it's a wonderful thing to be aware of um, because if you have that in your awareness, you can actually shift it and do something about it. Whether you understand consciously how to do that now or not, when you know it's a thing, that, that it becomes something that you can actually affect. So I think that's it's yeah. just a, a lovely thing that you, you touched on there that I just wanted to mention. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so worth mentioning. And in fact, I've been teaching online corporate well-being workshops and we talk about self-sabotage and just reassuring people that actually this is not something to beat yourself up about. This is just mm. how your brain works. Let's understand how your brain works. Yeah, programming, because it does take it out of something that you have to... I don't know, be really hard on yourself about it and just be like, you're not alone. This is how everyone mm. works. This is evolutionary biology. This is just how your body reacts. And kind of on that note, are we wired to resist discomfort then? You know, do we automatically go for those? Do we get stuck in secondary gains? Is everybody prone to this? You know, like, how do we work around discomfort? How does the brain work around discomfort? So I would strip it back and say that we all neurologically wire about 50% the same. So the, the basic hardware is really, really similar in, mm -hmm. in, in most individuals, but then the software changes. So those programs change. Now, we all shape, our, all of our lives in those, those programs are shaped, those subconscious programs, which create all of our behaviours, all of our choices, all of our feelings, our emotions, our emotional reactions, you know, physiological functions, all of those things come from a run by subconscious programs, as we've discussed, because the brain's trying to go on autopilot and it's building that number, that volume, that library, that bank of programs, It's building those throughout the course of your life until you get to a point sometime around 30, maybe 35, where you've just got enough programs to run on autopilot nearly all the time. And in those early years of life, and this is really key when we say those first seven years of life is when we're just most impressionable mm -hmm. in a child's mind, who's is in the age bracket of zero to seven, those little brains don't even hit an alpha brainwave state 
until they're around seven years of age. They just stay in delta and theta. So there's really slow brainwave states for, for pretty much that entire period of time, and they're just downloading. They're not mm-hmm. critically thinking. They're not arguing so much, despite what it might look like when they're protesting things. They're not critically thinking and, and debating things. They're just downloading. They're absorbed, and they have this this ability for passive neuroplasticity. So mm-hmm. as a parent, you know, they say, you know, more is caught than taught. You know, and it's just that those kids, they're just watching what you do and they're just downloading your actions and they're downloading your belief system pretty much just by osmosis, just by this passive neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So they're building out this whole bank of programs and downloading all of that and building and, and literally building out that bank of programs in their subconscious mind so they can one day run on autopilot, um, probably with, some, with a, a fair chunk of parental software that each parent has kind of given them. And they'll download, they'll, they'll download more programs from their teachers and from their friends. And a whole bunch of the programs that they're running will be shifted by emotional experiences and traumatic experiences. And, and we need to remember that the brain has a negativity bias. So mm-hmm. it's something like, and I don't, know, I don't know exactly how accurate this is, but I suspect it's somewhere in the ballpark. I've heard the ratio of 30 to 1 a number of different times in terms of the brain pays 30 times more attention to negative stimuli than it does to positive stimuli. Mm. And really what that means is that a negative event, an, an event that is perceived as negative, the con- that, that stimuli, the information from that stimuli can be, that stimulus can be transduced and can be imprinted or it can impact the subconscious mind. Whereas a, a similar level conscious experience, you kind of don't get past that buffer of noise in the conscious mind. And so those negative experiences, if that, whenever any thought reaches the subconscious mind, because the subconscious mind is like a child's mind and it doesn't critically think, it doesn't argue, it doesn't debate, when thought reaches the subconscious mind, it just becomes a new belief. So that, And that belief will then begin to express new programs. So when we have these emotional experiences and these traumatic experiences, that shifts us, that shifts our belief. So we're all building out our own unique and individual bank of subconscious programs. And we're we're, we're reflecting those same programs from everyone else in humanity. So there's a whole bunch of programs that are are shared amongst nearly everyone in humanity. Um, But we all have our own individual life experience as well. So if you're running programs that hold a virtue or, or that, that shift you towards spaces where you will feel more discomfort, then yes, absolutely. That's kind of where you, that's what you'll be wired for. But perhaps if you grew up, you know, in, in a commune full of hippies and it was all about free love and just, you know, make love, not war and just happiness, you know, and just life is all about flow and ease. Well, maybe you have no, no virtue in that because your life experience has shifted you away from discomfort because you were kind of taught and shown from a long age, from a young age that that's just not who we are or what we need mm-hmm. to do. And and your the, the circuitry in your brain and the and, and the programming in your programs in your brain will reflect that. Mm. Well, it's an interesting one to remember as well that it, it's really important to go back to those early programmings that we all received before the age of seven, where we are literally just downloading from other people around us. So our parents or the adults in our lives have a huge impact. And a lot of trauma can happen early in life by how you're treated or how you feel loved or whether you encounter physical or other abuse. So that stuff that's baked in there, but it can Mm. be rewired is actually something that's probably useful for people to know because they might not know Mm. that. Like it's in there, people. It's in there. 
none of us has the ability to think critically before the age of seven. So whatever is shown to us by the world around us is what we just ingest as the program and as fact. So yeah, it's, it's a useful thing for a lot of people to know, I think, that there's probably some stuff to go in there and undo, but it's really worth doing. I mean, you go to the gym and build your muscles, work like this on your your brain, your wiring, your programs, your scripts is absolutely critical as well to being in your best self, in your best life, right? 100%. And I think that's the thing. Uh, so much of our society and the way our society functions is, like I said, we, we focus on the physical. And so in physical modalities and so with an approach to health, we, we specialize and we look at, you know, specific organs. We have a specific surgeon who deals with ear, nose and throat. We have another one for the brain. We've got another one for, for respiratory function. We've got another, another one who deals with liver, another one who deals with the gastrointestinal system. And, you know, and we specialize in these things and we look to these uh, physical sy systems. And so when we talk about upgrading the body, we go to the gym and we move specific muscles looking to try and make them stronger, make them bigger. And I guess what I saw going down this path is it's really, really clear to see that you can say you're, you know, you're, it, it's, you don't build strength so much as your nervous system actually grants you strength. And it's like, if you want to actually pay attention to the brain and pay attention to the nervous system, well, then you can increase the output, the nervous system output to those muscles and you will instantly be stronger. And this is something that again, really was a, a real light bulb going off in me. And I was able to just promote this to clients and most people were on board with it. But interestingly, uh, for, you know, as far as this chat goes, there were quite a few who weren't. And so I used to say to people, look, if we go and do a session and we do some treatment, we work on your neurology, you're literally going to come and stand in this treatment room for an hour and you're going to do nothing and you're going to walk out stronger. And most people were like, fantastic, sweet. That sounds like a great deal. But then there were other people who were like, well, I've come to the gym to get stronger, but you're telling me that I'm not going to work. Like, I'm not okay with that. You know, th th there needs to be some work here. There needs to be some yeah. suffering. And so, and and then they, they just weren't wired for that. So we would have to spread that treatment out over a number of weeks and just do small amounts of the neurologic treatment, so they could just they could have their suffering. And that was something that I learned uh, that I learned early on. I found that really really interesting. But again, it's just it's mm -hmm. how human psych how human psyche works. Especially high achievers, don't you think? Like athletes or mm. people who are used to being sort of the ones who got good grades in school, the ones who are killing it in their careers, it needs to feel a little bit hard because we're used to having to work hard. And yeah, I remember encountering this flow state really for the first time consciously like last year. And my coach actually went, oh, I just got this about you. You need to think everything's a struggle. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. And just knowing that about myself allowed me to very consciously learn to be at ease and to be like, this is magical. Things just unfold without my having to be exhausted or think about it all the time or spend hours doing it. It's amazing how, how easy things can be when you let them be. And that's very tied to exactly what you're talking about. Because when you talk in healing all the time, everybody talks about surrender. And that was something that was said to me in my mm. journey. And I really didn't understand what people were talking about. And I had been an athlete. I've been an athlete in a combat sport. So when everyone was telling me that I needed to surrender, <laughs> that made absolutely no sense to me. And I, ha I, ha I held absolutely no virtue on anything to do with surrender. It made no sense to me at all. Mm. And really, so what you're talking about, you know, is 
the amazing thing with the neurotransmitter dopamine, we're all really, most people are really aware of it being as a, a reward neurotransmitter. So like when you hit your goal or when you, when you have that achievement, you know, or you've done that hard work and you have that release because I've hit the finish line and you get a hit of dopamine and it feels amazing and we get addicted to that and it's incredible. But the amazing thing about dopamine is it doesn't just reward goal achievement. It doesn't just reward goal attainment. It also rewards effort. And presumably that came about from hunting. If you were having to hunt for food and you were having, you know, we were, we're an endurance animal. So, you know, we're, we're, we're bipedal. We've got just, we, we run on two legs. So we, we expend less energy than animals who run on four legs and we can outrun over, you know, uh, animals who can run much faster than us. We can run for days and days until they get tired, but it means you're going to have to track them. And you're going to have to follow a trail and you're going to have to stick to that chase. You know, otherwise you might not get the food and you don't survive. So when you're presumably when you were running through the bush and you, you know, are going for days hunting, chasing an animal and you come, you happen upon a track on, on you know, a, a, a paw print or something from that animal's trail and it lets you know that you are on track, you, you get a little hit of dopamine. There's mm. a, you, you, you're, you're being rewarded for your effort. And basically that little neurotransmitter is saying like, you know, keep going. This is good. You'll get more of this. You keep going, you'll get more. And so, yeah, we can get addicted to that. We can absolutely get addicted to that reward that we get for effort, you know. And so, and I think that's a really, really key point that, you know, we can all really get hooked on that. And it feels great. You know, like if you, when you get as an athlete, when you train hard and then you associate, you know, you get those neurotransmitter rewards and then you get the real highs from actually achieving your goal as well you get addicted to the whole process. And so absolutely you can wire that into your system that, you know, this mm. discomfort thing, there's a huge virtue in that. And that's really where I want to be. Yeah. And also society rewards that too, because, you know, if you're seen to be a mm. hard worker, you're a virtuous employee, or if you yep. work long hours, you're committed to your job rather than just maybe I work smarter, not harder. As you talked about earlier and your dad was horribly disappointed in you. But yeah, I feel like it was, yeah. yeah, people just need to kind of hear this, that this is actually how you're wired. This is normal. This is something to become conscious of because then you can actually do something about it. But mm. yeah, yeah, that's my main there mission was, in talking to you about this stuff. <laughs> there was, and I think there was, there was a story that it was in the news here a few years ago. And, you know, it really does speak about that whole that we reward effort and hard work and morals and look you can you can argue about the morals of this um but essentially it was a story about a worker who had found, worked out how to work smart not hard and he was basically getting all of his work done what he'd done was he literally outsourced all of his work and all of his work to uh someone in india and was paying them 30 percent of his salary uh, to do all of his work and he was literally doing absolutely nothing and collecting 70 percent of his salary now he got fired for that but you essentially you're talking about someone who just found a way smarter way. Apparently, he got away with it for months. So, oh. um, you know, you found you've got someone who found a much smarter way to go for way, way, way less effort. And you know, the first thing that we kind of do is is shut it down and punish it rather than necessarily look and say that guy's actually pretty smart. He's figured out a way to get around this whole this whole effort thing, you know, and then done it at a, at a at a lower cost. 
you know, there's 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 some brains, there's some intelligence in, in what in what he did. But um, again, you know, it's it's I'm not making it. It's just an observation. I'm make, not making a call as to whether it was the right or the wrong thing for that guy <laughs> to get fired. I just think it's an interesting observation. Yeah, it depends on your ethical agreements with your workforce or yeah, exactly. contracts, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of the work harder, not smarter, because I've always been. I mean, I come from cowboy country. I come from Wyoming, where it's all about make effort if you don't do it no one else will you know we, mm. we we subdue this land we build stuff we survive in nature so it's it's been a real process of reprogramming myself my whole life to learn to be at ease with ease and that was a really uncomfortable process for me which mm. i think is super interesting before we started recording you were talking about how we are an electrical system and i'd like to talk mm. about that but also how that relates to things like thought energy that you talk about basically quantum physics the law of attraction how we're wired we are circuitry we put out a force field and also how that affects what we draw to us or what we encounter or what we think of as bad luck or good luck or wherever you want to take this scott feel free to take this but yeah that, <laughs> that circuitry and and how that affects our field and everything Mm. Okay, so I would say that our society predominantly views the human body as a physical body and not a whole lot more. Mm. And the truth is there is more. This is this is the truth and it is always, always, always the truth in working with the brain, the nervous system, the body and just the human being. There is just always, always more. Now, one of my clients wrote a comment to me the other week and he, and it, it was really highlighting that he's come a long way in his journey and in his understanding. And his words were that this whole thing of understanding that life is an inside job, it's a real process to get to that point where you can actually see that and accept it. But once you do, wow, geez, you get some power and geez, you can affect some things and change some things. And really what he's describing is that, yes, we are a collection of fields. We're a collection of energy fields and different you know, thought fields, energy fields, and there's no separation. There's no separation between us and the next field, which means that we are influencing and being influenced by. So we are effectively able to influence others. We're effectively able to have an influence on the world around us. And I guess in the work that I do with changing the subconscious mind, what happens is people see their world around them actually changing because what they're doing is they're setting up a vibration. They're setting up a vibration in their energy field and in their thought field, and that influences the environment around them. It influences people around them and their perception shifts. And so the world essentially begins to change. Now, this whole thing of no separation is just, it's an amazing, it's an amazing and mind-blowing, reality-shifting kind of concept to go into, this whole thing of quantum entanglement. And mm. I am certainly no different from anyone else in that I have had my reality challenged several times before I had to just really just let go and say, okay, I can't deny this anymore, you know? And so the whole thing of quantum entanglement is, and it's been, this has been shown in different scientific experiments um, that if you have two particles or two atoms that are entangled, you can, you can affect one of them and the other one, no matter where it is, it will, it will exhibit the exact same change at the exact same time. And, you know, and you can take them far enough apart that you can demonstrate and show that it's, it's, it's happening faster than the speed of light. So it's, it's something going beyond the speed of light, which if you, you know, if you were Albert Einstein, there's nothing that can go faster than the speed of light. So it challenges, you know, it challenges that level of thinking. And that was something that Einstein was incredibly uncomfortable with. So he used to call mm -hmm. quantum entanglement this spooky action at a distance. And so when we're setting up, these, setting up these vibrational fields, 
yes, you are vibrating at a certain frequency and you pull things into resonance with you. Mm. So the classic thinking or the way we kind of look at manifestation, and I'll talk about that because that's, I guess that's a really popular topic that mm. most people have kind of touched on or have some idea of. The really interesting thing with manifestation is that manifestation and the way we look at that in kind of new age thinking, it's actually the way that prayer was intended to be. It's mm-hmm. actually the way that prayer was intended to be sort of in the Bible before the Bible was kind of edited and changed. And so really what we do in manifestation is we are connecting with a quantum potential. We're connecting with a quantum possibility. So in the quantum field, in the unified quantum field, all possibilities exist because time is infinite and because you have infinite time, you have enough time for all possibilities to exist. So when you're trying to manifest something, you can create an image in mind and then you create some emotions that go with that. And then once you begin to feel those emotions um, to a, at a certain level, you have created a resonance with that quantum potential. And when you've created essentially a link between you and that energetic potential, well, then what you're doing, because you are vibrational energy, that quantum potential is vibrational energy. It's pure energy, so it's vibrating much faster. You are, you are vibrational energy that has slowed down enough to be able to manifest a physical form. And so you holding yourself in resonance with that energetic potential slows that energy down and you end up pulling it towards you where it collapses itself into physical material form and we call that manifestation. So really when we, what we're doing is we're setting up an emotional state, a vibration, uh, an, an electromagnetic signature or a, vibra- a, a vibra- vibrational frequency that resonates with a potential and we pull that potential towards us. And so we can call that the law of attraction because we're pulling literally something of the same frequency towards us. What we're talking about is just creating resonance, you know. And so the really, really powerful thing to acknowledge is that we each have power over all of our thoughts all of our thoughts are maintaining our thought fields and, and literally driving our energy fields to hold itself in certain states of vibration or certain um, expressions or certain shapes or certain sizes. And those thoughts that we have control of, they create the resonance. They create resonance with other things. And when we create resonance with other things, then we create an attraction. We kind of pull that towards us. And again, we can call that manifestation or we can call it law of attraction, just seeing something new pop up into our, into our life mm. that um, looks pretty much the same way as we've been feeling. Mm. And that also holds true for things that we don't want. We can attract things that are poor health or bad luck or catastrophe. And, and you see this if you start to watch other people or maybe even yourself, you can see that the law of attraction works with both, well, quote unquote, positive and negative circumstances. I'm also interested in this idea that we we all kind of have a capacity, like our bucket for holding abundance and goodness is only as big as our experience and our wiring of what we're comfortable with. So if you're used to struggling or being poor or having bad luck in romantic relationships, that's actually your comfort zone. So Mm. when it comes to actually expanding to live and step into those things that maybe people are trying to manifest, you know, sort of greater financial abundance or a great relationship or whatever, but actually do we kind of work against ourselves in the meantime, unless we've prepared ourselves to realize I'm going to hit a capacity of my comfort zone. And then I'm probably going to self-sabotage to, to stay at the level at which I'm comfortable rather than expand to embrace the abundance, the thing that I think I want to manifest. That's a thing, Mm. isn't it? It is indeed. So when we talk about energy, you can say, so the human energy, all organisms have an energy field. 
the human organism has an energy field and we are, the human energy field is a collection of different electromagnetic frequencies and we call them layers. And so we've kind of got seven predominant layers around the human being. And essentially when you come into an increased amount of energy, we each have a threshold. And if you go above that threshold, that, that your threshold tolerance, then you'll have a defensive reaction. You know, and, and and it doesn't really matter who you are or how great your expression of energy is, you will still have a threshold. It might be higher than the next person, but you'll still have a threshold. So something that I talk to people about all the time, and nearly in, in session one with pretty much everyone I work with, we talk about saying that you know you're everybody, nearly everybody, especially when they're first starting out in this journey, you, you're you're dealing with your own habitual experience of life, and you will almost certainly have a threshold level for tolerance for the amount of positive energy that you are prepared to allow into your life. And mm. once it goes over that, you know, if we kind of get too big of a result in that first session, if we go beyond what you're prepared to allow, we'll get a defensive reaction and you'll start to block your own result, you know, and you see it all the time. And, and what I see is people who come back and we do a second session or a third session, what they're prepared to allow actually expands quite dramatically, you know, mm. and so, and, and because They've, they've had that first experience. They didn't crash. They didn't die. They were, everything was okay. It all worked out. They had an increased amount of positive and everything was okay. So when, once they see that was all right, things shift, the threshold shifts and we can allow more. And, and that's something that that's a process that we can kind of enter into and, and continue until we can actually, you know, kind of receive miracles, so to speak. You can receive, you know, huge, huge, huge results because you've up-leveled your threshold tolerance for the amount of energy that you're prepared to allow in, especially in positive energy as such. Mm. It's a really good call to remind people to just take it easy, go step by step, because we can actually sort of trigger almost a short circuit response by by mm. getting all the things we ever thought we wanted at once. It could actually kind of make you miserable because <laughs> your brain's like, whoa, 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 can't handle this too much, too much, too much. So take it easy. Well, do, if the you, work, do the practice. Absolutely. If you think about it. So again, when we talk about Everything in the system at its base, at its heart, at its core kind of runs on thought energy. So deep in your subconscious, imagine this for a moment. And this is why most people talk about working with the subconscious mind in a negative context. And they describe the subconscious mind in terms of something they need to be able to get over or work past or get around somehow. Mm. And people like myself who work in that space say, we really should just be celebrating the subconscious because it is the most amazing, magnificent thing that when you work out how to change it, you can kind of have just about anything that you want. Mm -hmm. So the brain, the mind, the ego, it's just so egotistical that if it holds onto a belief, because its number one priority is survival and because it's a prediction-based organ, it needs to kind of make itself right. It needs to make itself right to know that its reality and the, rule, the framework of rules that it's clinging to are rock solid and then mm -hmm. it can continue predicting outcomes. So it wants if if its experience if its experience of life or its environment doesn't match with a belief that it's holding it typically it won't typically go and change or shift the belief it'll go and shift the experience it'll go and shift the world around it because it's that egotistical and it's actually that powerful that it can do it so if you have deep in your system if you have a core belief that i deserve to be either happy or i deserve to be unhappy they are two very different experiences of life. The outputs of those beliefs are two very different experiences of life. So if you hold a belief that I, des I deserve to be unhappy, 
And this will be this will be a belief that will have shifted as a result of something probably that happened in childhood or some emotionally traumatic experience that made you feel like that was just that's what you deserve and that's what life should hold for you. And it'll be on a subconscious level. It, it won't be almost certainly won't be something that you are consciously believing or thinking. But if your subconscious mind holds that belief, I deserve to be unhappy. Well, then when positive things begin to, to happen in your life and you find yourself experiencing a level of joy, you'll just find a way to consistently undo that. You'll find a way to make the situation, turn it around, twist somebody's words, twist a look or you know, misperceive something's a words or a look or, or a gesticulation that somebody that somebody gave in your, you know, in, in your immediate surroundings to be able to twist the situation around where you can then experience feelings of unhappiness. And the brain will do that just to make itself right. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, good. Yep. Programs are solid reality's holding we're back where we need to be okay perfect and that's kind of what the brain's what the brain's thinking and that's why this thought energy and that's why those those beliefs at that deep deep level are so powerful and so when you shift them you can imagine if you shift your deep belief from i deserve to feel unhappy to i deserve i deserve to be happy then that's a very different experience of life if you if you're in a neutral situation and you hold the belief that I deserve to be happy, well, your brain will look to find and see the things, perceive the things that will give it those feelings of happiness. Mm-hmm. And this is a really, really key point when we've, everybody has that, uh, everybody knows the saying that seeing is believing, but really you don't see until you believe because mm-hmm. the brain literally only, it, it literally only sees the things that it believes it's going to perceive. <laughs> you know, we like the, the, the visual system you know, the, 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 the visual spectrum is literally like 1% of, of all electromagnetic frequencies, 1% of kind of what's out there. So the brain will kind of wire itself into specific frequencies and those specific frequencies will be the ones that align with the beliefs that it holds so it can maintain its reality. And so we will create the realities that, that our brain has predicted that we're going to experience. You have to believe to see rather than seeing is mm. believing. Yeah, mm. absolutely. That totally makes sense. And hopefully all of these things that we're talking about are interesting to people, but also make sense and help them to think, ah, oh, man, we are, we are just circuitry. We are wired a certain way. We are kind of reassuringly predictable in some ways. This is just how mm. we work. But then within that is just so much magical possibility of what can you there wire is. What can you mm. send out to the world and bring back to you? And also, if you all are continually having crap experiences or negative experience or poor luck, this is something that you can change because it's probably something you're drawing to yourself because mm. you're looking for that or you're wired for that or there was some childhood trauma you haven't dealt with that just kind of programmed in that expectation. So hopefully all of this is very good news to people that we are absolutely able i don't want to say in control of because control is a crap illusion but we're able to (laughs) really consciously and then subconsciously impact our lives and the lives of those around us by how Mm. we are wired so Mm. i'm interested in sort of what what keeps you uncomfortable what keeps you growing the edges of your comfort zone scott just just learning just learning more and more i mean I, i guess what kind of lights a fire under me is just exploring the limitlessness of human potential. Really, that's that to me, I guess, glimpsing that as, you know, when I first started going into this space, just maybe sort of think like, right, what, you know, what is it? How far can we take this? How far can we go? What's, what's possible? You know, and reading, you know, reading 
ancient texts and uh, reading what, you know, what, what we've reported from ancient civilizations and then just allowing that to be and just thinking, well, you know, I wonder. I wonder what's possible. How much, how much are we holding ourselves back by, you know, holding on to creating a, a society-wide or a civilization-wide limiting belief around our own, our own capabilities? Um, and so that can be an uncomfortable space to push into when you start challenging that in people because one thing I've experienced, particularly in live courses when I teach people, is you really get to experience from people when you when you challenge someone's reality, which is what happens when you start talking about these quantum physics and you start talking about law of attraction and you start and you start demonstrating that in the room and you show people, you know that you know how one body can affect another body and potentially you know from across the room without contact and that is just right outside the reality that that one particular individual has got set up for themselves. When that person sees that then what's going on in that brain is that they look that brain is now perceiving that this person in front of me has just highlighted to me that my reality is perhaps not as rock solid as i thought it was mm. which means that all of a sudden i now don't know how to keep myself safe because i can't predict the rules to reality mm. so really at that point that brain some brains will just embrace it some brains will just look at that and go that is amazing show me more but a lot of brains will look at that situation and really feel the fear, feel the discomfort there. Mm-hmm. And that brain will, will, the only real option that that brain sees to make itself feel comfortable and safe again is to tear down the, re- the reality that's just been pre- presented to them. And so they will, they will either ridicule really hard or, or, or get very aggressive in, in trying to tear down, um, you know, the new reality that's just been demonstrated to them. So I guess that kind of keeps me, that's, that's the uncomfortable space that I'm in that, you know, I'm trying to sort of bring this out to people and show this to people and, and you're showing it to people who are generally always expressing uh, an intent and a desire to have more, experience more and, and up-level their lives. But sometimes when you show it to them, um, you know, it's challenging. It's challenging to that mm-hmm. reality and you can, get a, you can get a really strong defensive reaction. So I guess that's the uncomfortable space, but I find it incredibly motivating to, yeah. you know, to show people that and share that with people. Yeah, I can relate to that as a campaigner, someone who builds movements, because I'm really fascinated in that sort of threshold of discomfort for people. When Mm. does it make them shut off and get combative? Uh, And when does it stress them out enough that they have to actually become, say, climate change activists or social justice activists? And where's that threshold? That's actually something I'm actively exploring. And hey, might even write a book on it at some point in the next year or two. (laughs) But yeah, that space of discomfort of being presented with the reality that actually... You have no control over the reality you thought you knew, but also it means you have all the possibilities open to you. And some people don't get to that point, do they? They're just, whoa, <laughs> whoa, nope, take me back to home base, what I know. So Yeah, yeah. Just want, just want, just want to be calm. And that's the thing. That's mm. what the brain wants. The brain just wants to take you back to that habitual, just get back to that comfort. And that's that ego, mm. that ego level. So we can say conscious mind or ego just wants to get back to the familiar. Just take me back to just where I can run my programs and everything's happy again. And, you know, with my, I just hang on to my experience of life and, you know, and look, and that's probably, that's right for a lot of people. Um, and there's, there's no, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, and it's like, just, just wait until it's, you feel ready to shift and look at something new. Nobody's, nobody is ever pushing, you know, no one should ever feel pushed into a new reality. It's like, if it's okay to go there, then fantastic. Mm. But if it feels right to stay where you are, then, you know, that's hundred percent your choice. Mm, find your relationship to discomfort right now yeah, yeah exactly Good so words. i guess 
sort of final point. Well, I use that one in my in my yin yoga classes all the time because I'm taking people to the edge of their comfort zone, but also respecting that there's a point of too much where your body just goes into not a good place. So yeah, mm. there's an edginess that you need to find your own relationship with discomfort. So final thing, I would love to hear what you would like to leave people with about what's the value of discomfort, maybe mentally, physically, and then and then what can they do with that? So we are this incredible feed forward feedback organism, you know, we, and we, I think we really don't have anywhere near a complete awareness of just how much feedback we're receiving all the time and how much we're feeding forward into the system and, and, and shifting things around us. So when we talk about discomfort, I look at it and say like, that is an incredible feedback. And it can be, I think a lot of people use it as an incredible feedback that I'm on the right track. But sometimes it, it can be an incredible feedback that I'm, you know, perhaps I'm creating more resistance here, which means if I'm creating resistance, that means that I'm not aligned with what's 100% truly right for me if I'm, if I'm creating resistance or, you know, I, if I'm making things more challenging for me than, than they actually need to, we can, we can always just look at discomfort or any feedback and just ask for truth. So this is something I deal with, I do with clients all the time. Look to get grounded in the truth. So I would, I would use that with discomfort because sometimes that discomfort is a really wonderful thing like we've discussed, a virtuous thing, and, you know, and there's merit, there is actually merit in that suffering and you know, there's enjoyment in the journey. You know, and sometimes there's discomfort there and, we just, and it feels great. There's other times that that discomfort is really there for no reason other than the fact that we are creating resistance to something else that we should be doing. You know, and or something else that would be, you know, that would be more true to who we are at our core. So, what you can do is just ask yourself, what is the truth of this situation? What is the truth of this discomfort that I'm feeling? Is it serving my highest good? Is it not serving my highest good? Mm. And then I can just sit back and just be still and just kind of just see what comes. What's the feeling? You know, is it good? Is it bad? And I would always encourage people to just when you, if you've never done this process before and you've never really worked consciously with intuition, mm. then just ask for a binary feedback, ask for a yes, no answer, ask for a good or a bad answer as in, is this good for me? Is this bad for me? Does this serve me? Does it not serve me? And you may not understand the answer that you get back initially, but what happens is, and this is the way neuroplasticity works, is that when you ask that question, as soon as you've asked that question, the answer will be available. This is the way things work in energy, Mm -hmm. but and your subconscious mind will perceive that information. Your subconscious mind will perceive the answer first. Your conscious mind not get, might not get a hold of it for a little while, but your subconscious mind is understanding it, which means that you are now creating new neural connections in your brain to that level of information or that sensitivity of information. Mm-hmm. And once you've created it, once you've done it enough times and you've created enough new neural connections to that level of information, you'll find that you just begin to have a conscious awareness of that information. So you'll ask yourself the question and you'll have an answer. Mm-hmm. And that answer may come visually. You may sort of see a flash of something. You may see words in your mind. You may sort of perceive, you, you may see something in your environment that, you know, that alerts you to a, a, a synchronicity. You may hear a voice in your head. You may just get a feeling that either feels nice or, or feels not so nice. Mm-hmm. But you'll, you'll have some level of, of intuitive feedback. So discomfort can be great. It can be a positive feedback. It can be a feedback telling us that we're potentially off track as well. So I guess I would leave people with that, that just ask for the truth, try and get grounded in the truth of the situation. And then once you have some level of truth that you're grounded in, well, then you can start to make decisions about, okay, do I, do I 
just press ahead and feel my way further into this discomfort or is it really, is it pushing me away from something? And then mm. you can potentially, you can optimize your life a little bit that way. <laughs> a little bit or a lot. Wow. Yeah. That's just a beautiful <laughs> reminder that we've kind of gotten throughout this conversation about, we all really do have access to those answers within ourselves. It just takes, you were talking about neural pathways. It's like building a road that your brain can travel along to understand your own responses and your intuition. But often we just haven't really considered ourselves like that or talked to different mm. parts of our body. And we literally just have to let our brain build those roads so that we can mm. then drive along them with greater ease and you have all that knowing in your brain, in your body, in your system. So yeah, it's about just building the skills to be able to listen and trust yourself, isn't it? Absolutely. The information is there. It's just learning how to access it. When we say learning, I need to build the network. I need to build the, I need to build the connections there that are going to allow me to be able to perceive and be able to transduce that information. Mm. You know, and it makes sense that you know, the, the first time you ask that question, you might not understand the answer because you just don't have the neural connections that support that, you, you receiving that answer and perceiving it consciously. So I think that's a really, really key point is that I always say to people that anybody who wants, who says that's not a thing and it doesn't work, if you want to prove me wrong, absolutely you can prove me wrong because you can tell me that it doesn't work and then by virtue of the fact of you saying that it doesn't work, you've just shut yourself off to it. So you are not going to experience it. So I'm not going to argue with you when you say that you don't experience it. And that's, that's okay. But if you want to feel your way into that situation and just be in that space. And I love the words of Sarah Rowland, who wrote a book on third, third eye awakenings, um, which your third eye um, in esoteric terms is where you is, is intuition. And literally it's, third eye vision so you're sort of seeing things in other dimensions mm. and her words in that book were start a conversation with your higher self if you're trying to get intuition start a conversation with your higher self and it'll be a one-way conversation for a while <laughs> but eventually you'll get an answer back and essentially that's what she's talking about she's describing mm. that you are building a sensitivity and you're building a level of connection to information in a different dimension or information you know at a different frequency mm. and, and once you've built that level of connection well, you'll be able to access it so we have the information within us we have everything that we need it's just learning how to access access that information and there are processes towards that nobody's ever completely cut off from it we just have to be open to treading that path and allowing it to unfold Ah, I love this. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this interview and I have taken up a lot of your time evening over there in Australia. And I know you've got kids, but I so appreciate this chat. I'm definitely going to have you back because I could dork out on neuroscience forever. And it's just fascinating <laughs> to hear your expertise. So thank you so much, Scott. Scott Robinson, the brain guy. I will put your information in the show notes so people can find you. You put up some brilliant Instagram videos quite regularly. You, you, your Instagram game is strong, my friend, and I know people will enjoy <laughs> it. So check him out. Follow Scott. Sign up to his newsletter. Check out his website. And uh, we'll get him back on the show pretty soon. So thank you so much, Scott. That was just such a, an enjoyable, delicious conversation. Thank you, Betsy. It's been actually been really, really cool. I really, really enjoyed having the chat and a lot of really great stuff to talk about. So look, it's I, I really appreciate it. And yeah, if anybody's found some of this stuff helpful, then fantastic. If you found it challenging, um, I just I'd encourage you to just sit with it, explore one or two of the things that we've talked about, and then perhaps come back and just revisit this chat at some point down the track when you feel that if and when you feel that your awareness may have shifted a little bit and you may find a whole other level of information here that you just actually missed. It was on a different frequency and you weren't mm. able to kind of hear it the first time. So 
you know, if it's new concepts, then it may well be worth doing that. Just take what you can from this one and come back to it, shelve it, come back to it three months, six months from now and see what it sounds like. There you go. From an expert. I can't add to that. Well, thank you everyone who's <laughs> listening. Thank you for your time, your attention, and definitely come back and listen to this one again sometime. Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Tsvetkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at TheBetsyRead. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable.